0: Chapter 3 of Giants on the Earth by Captain S.P. Meeks This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The Doom on Mars Two days later, Damis dropped the ship gently to the ground in a wide and deep depression which had been designated as their landing place. The Grand Mognac had assured them that the depression held enough atmosphere to enable them to breathe with comfort. There was no one in sight when they landed, and, after a short consultation, Damus and Turgan entered the airlock. In a few moments they stood on the surface of Mars. They had landed in a desert without even a trace of the most rudimentary vegetation. Barren slate-colored mountains shut off their view at a distance of a few miles. When they strove to move they found that the conditions which had confronted the Jovians in their first landing on the earth were duplicated. The lesser gravity of the smaller planet made their strength too great for easy control, and the slightest effort sent them yards into the air. This condition had been anticipated, and at a word from Damus lead weights made to clamp on the soles of their sandals were passed out from the spaceship. Although this enabled them to keep their footing when moving over the dry surface of Mars, the slightest exertion in the thin air caused them acute distress. "'We had better save our strength until the messengers of the Grand Mognac arrive,' said Damis at length. "'We may have quite a trip before us.' Turgan agreed, and they sat down by the side of the ship, where its shadow would shield them from the fierce solar rays which beat down on them. The sun looked curiously small, yet its rays penetrated the thin air with a heat and fierceness strange to them. Laura and a half-dozen of the crew were passed through the airlock and joined them. "'I am surprised that the Martians have not arrived,' said Damis presently. "'I am interested to see what their appearance is.' Hardly had he spoken than the air before them seemed to thicken in a curious fashion. Laura gave a cry of alarm and pressed close to Damis. The sun's rays penetrated with difficulty through a patch of air directly before them. Gradually the mistiness began to assume a nebulous uncertain outline and separated itself into four distinct patches. The thickening air took on a silvery metallic gleam, and four metallic cylinders made their appearance. Two of them were about eight feet in height and three feet in diameter. The other two were fully thirty feet in length, and about the same diameter. On the top of each one was a projecting cap shaped like a mushroom, and from it long tenuous streamers of metal ran the full length of each cylinder. From the ether came a thought-wave which registered on the brains of all the terrestrials. "'The Grand mognac of Mars sends his greeting, and a welcome to the visitors from Earth,' the message ran. Before his envoys make their appearance before you, we wish to warn you to be prepared for a severe shock, for their physical appearance is not that of the life with which you are familiar. I would suggest that you turn your heads while we emerge from our transporters." Obediently the earthmen turned their gaze toward their ship, until another thought-wave ordered them to turn. Laura gave a cry of horror, and Damus instinctively raised one of the Jovian ray-tubes. Before them were huge figures which seemed to have stepped out of a nightmare so grotesque were their forms. The Martians had long slug-like bodies twenty-five feet in length, from which projected a multiplicity of short legs. The legs on the rear portions of the bodies terminated in sucker-like discs on which they stood on the surface of the planet. The upper part of the body was raised from the ground, and the legs terminated in forked appendages like hands. Stiff coarse hair, brown in color, protruded from between brilliant green scales edged with crimson the heads were huge and misshapen and consisted mostly of eyes with a multitude of facets and huge jaws which worked incessantly as though the slugs were continually chewing on something nothing that the earth could show resembled those monstrosities although it flashed across damis's mind that a hugely enlarged caricature of an intelligent caterpillar would bear some resemblance to the martians Another thought-wave impinged on the consciousness of the terrestrials. Mars is much older than your planet, and evolution has gone much further here than it has on Earth. At one time there were forms of life similar to yours which ruled this planet, but as air and water became scarce, these forms gave way to others which were better suited to conditions as they existed. I would be pleased to explain further, but the Grand Mognac anxiously awaits his guests. His orders are that two of you shall visit him in his city. The two whom he desires to come are Turgan, the leader of the expedition, and Damis the Nephthalim. Fear nothing. You are among friends." Damis hesitated and cast a glance at Laura. "'By all means, Damis, do as the Grand Mognac bids you,' she exclaimed. I will stay here with the ship until you return. I am not at all frightened, for the whole crew will be here with me." Damis kissed her, and after a word with Turgan he announced their readiness to proceed. He inquired the direction in which they should travel, but another thought-wave interrupted him. "'We have brought transportation for you,' it said. "'Each of you will enter one of the smaller transporters, which were especially prepared for your use.' When you enter them, seal them tightly and place your feet in the stirrups you will find in them. Grasp the handles which will be before you firmly in your hands. In an instant you will be dissolved into elemental atoms and carried on a beam of force to the receiving focus where you will again be materialized. There is no danger and no pain. It is our usual means of transportation. With a final word of farewell to Laura and the crew, Turgan and Damis unfastened and entered the two smaller cylinders. Before the astonished eyes of the Terrestrials the cylinders grew thin and vanished like a puff of smoke dissipating in a wind. Laura turned to Kastner, whom Turgan had left in command. "'What were my father's orders?' she asked. "'Merely that we wait here until his return,' he replied. Since we are among friends there is no need to keep the ray projectors manned, and I am anxious to let all of the crew have the experience of setting foot on a new planet." "'I am a little tired,' said Laura. "'I will return to the ship and rest while you let the crew try their footing on Mars.' She entered the airlock, and in a few moments was again inside the ship. At a word from Kastner the balance of the crew passed through the lock, and began to amuse themselves by trying to keep their footing on the surface of Mars. Damis and Turgan, having entered the transporters, slipped their feet in place as the Martians had directed. They grasped firmly the handles which projected from the inside of the cylinders. There was a momentary sensation of slight nausea, and then a thought wave reached them You have arrived. Unfasten your cylinders and emerge. They stepped out of the transporters and rubbed their eyes in astonishment. Two of the huge slugs had been amazing, but the effect of half a hundred grouped about them was more than the mind could for a moment grasp. They were in a huge room, composed apparently of the same silvery material of which the transporters were made. It rose above them in a huge dome with no signs of windows or openings. It was lighted by a soft glow which seemed to emanate from the material of the dome itself, for it cast no shadows. On a raised platform before them rested one of the huge slugs, a broad band of silvery metal set with flashing, coruscating jewels clasped about its body. From the ornament and the exalted position they judged that they were before the Grand Mognac of Mars. With a muttered word to Turgan to follow him, Damus advanced to the foot of the platform, and bowed deeply. "'I thank you for that mark of respect, Nephthalim,' came a thought-wave from the Grand Mawgnek. "'But such forms are obsolete on Mars. Here all living intelligences are equal. Only the accident of superior mental power is allowed to differentiate between us, And this added power brings only added and more arduous duties. You came here to get weapons which will free you from the dominance of the Jovians who rule you, did you not?" "'We did, O Grand Morgnak,' replied Damas. "'Your prayers shall be answered if you are found worthy. Relate to me now all that has passed since the Jovians first landed on your planet. If you can form thoughts without speaking you may save the effort of speech. The air has become so thin on Mars that sound will not carry over large portions of it. As a result we have no organs for hearing, for they have been atrophied from ages of disuse. We use thought as our only means of communication." Rapidly Damis marshalled his thoughts in order. Slowly and carefully he pictured in his mind the landing of the Jovians as he had heard it described, and then the event leading up to their trip. The Grand Mognac frequently interrupted him and caused him to amplify in detail some of the mental pictures, and at times turned to Turgan and requested him to picture the same events. When Damus had finished the Grand Mognac was motionless for ten minutes pardon me for sealing my thoughts from you he said at length but my consultation with my counsellors was not a matter for those from another planet to know no matter how friendly they may be my counsel have agreed with me that your tale is a true one and has been fairly pictured we have no interest in the fate of your planet except that we desire to help the form best adapted to bring about the day we will await with anxiety when all the planets will be united in bonds of love and justice we believe that the form which developed on the earth is better adapted to this than the form which developed on jupiter and we will give you weapons which will enable you to free yourselves and to protect your planet against future invasions. My scientists are now busy preparing for you weapons which we will deliver to your ship. Meanwhile you are our honored guests. You will be interested in seeing life as it exists here, and Otto one of my council, will be your guide and will answer your questions. The Grand Mognac dropped the upper portion of his body to the dais, as a sign that the interview was ended. Damis and Turgan hurriedly tried to form appropriate expressions of gratitude in their minds, but a powerful thought-wave took possession of their minds. "'Follow me,' it said. One of the caterpillars crawled forward and beckoned to them. With a backward glance at the Grand Mognac, who seemed unaware of their existence, Damis and Turgan followed their guide. He led the way to a platform upon which he slowly crawled. In answer to a thought command, Turgan and Damis climbed upon it, and in an instant they were skimming at high speed over the ground. The platform came to a stop near the outer edge of the huge dome. They followed their guide from the platform to a box-like contrivance built against the dome. It had lenses similar in appearance to the observers on the Jovian spaceship, but built on a larger scale. Otto Manas removed the lenses from the instrument and substituted two smaller pairs, through which he motioned Turgan and Damis to look. Before them lay a huge plain, across which ran a belt of green foliage. The vegetation forms were like nothing the Earth could show. There were no true leaves, but huge pulpy branches ran up into the air a hundred feet, and divided and subdivided until they became no larger around than hairs. At places on the plant were huge crimson, mauve, and blue flowers ten feet across. As they watched a monstrous form flitted into view. It was that of a butterfly, but such a butterfly as they had never imagined. The spread of the huge wings was fully a hundred feet across, and its swollen body was larger by far than the huge slug which stood beside them. The butterfly waved its thirty-foot tentacles and approached one of the blue flowers. A long curled sucker, fifty feet in length, unrolled, and was plunged down into the heart of the trumpet-shaped flower. Gradually the blue color faded to mauve, and then to a brilliant crimson. The butterfly abandoned it when the change of color was completed, and flitted away to another of the blue blooms. "'What manner of thing is that?' demanded Damis. "'That was a member of the council,' replied Atomanus. "'She was chosen to be one of those to perpetuate our race,' Evolution has gone farther with us than on your planet, but it will show you what in time you may expect. Life started with an amoeba on Mars as it did on Earth, and the slow process of evolution followed similar lines. At one time forms like yours were the ruling and guiding intelligences of Mars. They were, however, a highly specialized form. As conditions changed the form changed, The head and chest grew larger as the air grew thinner, until the enfeebled trunk and limbs could no longer support their weight. Gradually the form died out and was replaced by others. The forms which you call insects on your earth were more primitive and hardier forms, and more readily adaptable. They increased in size and in intelligence until they were ready to supplant all other forms. The last vestiges of the bipeds were carefully nurtured and guarded by our forefathers, until the vanishing atmosphere made their survival impossible. The insect form became supreme. We multiplied with extreme rapidity, and would have overcrowded the planet had we not learned several things. Our present form of life is immature in many ways. For example, we are totally unable to reproduce our kind. That is the function of the next phase. In this form, however, the intelligence reaches its maximum. As a result, all living creatures, except selected ones, have their growth arrested at the larval stage, and pass their entire life in this form. Certain ones, at long intervals of time, as the population diminishes, are allowed to spin cocoons and hatch out in the form you have witnessed. This form is almost brainless. The securing of nourishment from flowers, and reproducing their kind, being the limits of their intelligence. The eggs are matured in the body of the one you saw. Soon she will lay many thousands of them, and then, her life mission accomplished, she will die. We will gather these eggs and tend them until they hatch. All defective ones will be destroyed, and the balance will be instructed until they are ready to take their place in the community and carry on the work of the planet. "'That is extremely interesting,' exclaimed Damas. "'Will our Earth in time support the same forms of life as does Mars now?' "'I can see no reason why evolution should follow a different path there than it has here,' replied Atomanus but millions of years will pass before you lose your atmosphere to such an extent as we have all our water is gathered at the polar ice-caps from whence we lead it as it melts through underground pipes hundreds of miles to the spot where we desire vegetation to grow there we deliver it directly to the roots of the plants so there is no waste Great bands of cultivated area criss-cross the planet, where the soil is of unusual fertility. A certain number of plants are allowed to flower and to bear fruit for the sustenance of the reproductive form of life, and to replace themselves. The others we devour while they are young and tender. Do you always live in these sealed cities? Always. There are hundreds of them scattered over the planet, As you have noticed, they are composed of damazonium, the same substance as is used in making the transporters. The whole city is but a large transporter. When we desire to feed, the city is disintegrated and materialized over a patch of vegetation which we eat. When the supply is for a time exhausted, the city is moved. This is one way in which we conserve the small supply of atmosphere which is left. Atomanus suddenly paused, and held up one hand for silence. In a moment the thought-waves again beat in on the consciousness of Damis and Turgan. "'The weapons which were promised you are ready,' he said. "'We will return to the throne of the Grand Mog'nak, and you will receive instructions in their use.' He again mounted the platform, and Damis and Turgan took their places beside him. Rapidly they were borne over the ground until they came to a stop before the dais on which the Grand Mognac rested. Beside the four cylinders in which they and the Grand Mognac's messengers had traveled from the spaceship to the city, another of huge proportions stood before the platform. Beside it were two instruments. From a mass of coils and tubes a long rod projected up. It was pivoted so that it could be directed toward any point. The rod on one of the instruments was blue, while the other was a fiery scarlet. These are the weapons which will enable you to destroy your oppressors, and prevent more from ever landing," said the Grand mog I must caution you, however, regarding their use. They generate a ray of almost infinite frequency, much higher than the disintegrating ray the Jovians use. Instead of resolving materials into light and energy, these devices will absolutely destroy the ether, that imponderable substance which permeates and fills all space. Heat and light travel in waves through the ether. When it is destroyed, only blackness and entire absence of heat remain nothing can bear the cold of interstellar space and yet it is warm compared to the absolute cold which the absence of ether produces when you direct one of these rays toward a jovian ship the ether in the ship is destroyed no insulation against the cold of space will interfere for the ether penetrates and permeates all substance the cold of absolute nothingness will destroy all life in the twinkling of an eye and the ship will be reduced to a puff of powder. At such a temperature, even stellanium has less strength than the most brittle substance. There are two of these devices set to different powers. The one with the blue rod is for use against spaceships, either before or after they enter the atmosphere envelope, Beware of using it except when it points in a direction almost normal to the surface of your planet. These devices tap and use the enormous force of gravity itself, and when they are locked to your planet they are anchored to the center of gravity of the planet. Unless it were normal to the planet's surface, its reactive force is so great that it would disrupt the balance which holds the planet in place were the beams set off on a tangential line. The other, whose projecting rod is painted red, can be used at any angle, as its force is only a minute fraction of that of the other. It also must be locked to the centre of gravity of the earth before it is used by means of the switch on the front. This instrument will give you power to annihilate your oppressors on earth, for, while it has not the terrible force of the other. It will penetrate any protective screen which the science of Jupiter can erect. Use it only against the Jovians, and when you have finished with it, destroy it that it may not fall into the hands of those who would misuse it. The other may be left intact to repel other Jovian attacks, but I think you need fear none. Once they learn you have it, They will be content with their conquests of Venus and Mercury, and give you a wide berth. The Jovians have had a taste of it already, and they leave Mars alone. Each instrument is set in action by closing the switch on top after closing the gravity anchor switch. To stop them, open the top switch. Under the direction of the Grand Mognac the Martians place the terrible weapons in the transporter prepared for them. Turgan and Damis strove to thank the grand mognac for his gift but he interrupted them promptly no thanks are due us he said we have done that which we believe is the best for the orderly development of this galaxy of planets and there is no reason why we should be thanked now enter the transporters and you will be returned to your spaceship destroy your oppressors and work for the day when Mars and Earth will march in peace toward the final goal of all life. Accompanied by two Martian envoys, Damus and Turgan entered the cylinders and fastened them closely. They set their feet in place and grasped the handles before them. Again came the feeling of nausea, and then a thought ordered them to emerge from the transporters. They emerged almost at the same instant. Before them lay the spaceship with its airlock wide open. Not a living soul was in sight. Damus leaped toward the ship, but his foot struck an obstruction which sent him sprawling. He glanced down, and a hoarse cry of alarm broke from his lips. He had stumbled over the body of Kastner. The body had been horribly mutilated by some heavy instrument, one arm hanging to the torso by a mere shred of flesh. Scattered around on the ground lay other mutilated bodies. With a shout of anguish Turgon sped toward the open spaceship. Damus, with a pale face, hastily examined the dead bodies. Eighteen of the terrestrials lay stiff in death, while the bodies of two huge Jovians, in the uniform of Glavor's personal guard, told the cause of their death. Damus, struck by a sudden apprehension, ran from one body to the next, and in a little while he straightened up with a momentary breath of relief. Laura's body was not among them. He turned to the spaceship in time to see Turgan appear in the door of the airlock. His face distorted by grief, and his tall body swaying. Damis hurriedly ran to him. Is Laura dead? He brought out the last word with an effort. Turgan's face worked for a moment before he could reply. Through the thin air of Mars came his choking voice. "'Worse,' he muttered. "'She is gone!' End of chapter 3